0: Okay, groovy. Welcome back, everyone. This is Joe Driscoll with the Salt City Grind podcast. Uh, I can't tell you how very excited I am about my guest today, Whitney Phillips. I've been reading your stuff over the last... Uh, I, I first spotted your uh, articles in The Guardian and uh, in Wired, and I saw Syracuse University. Uh, so I was, I was very excited to see if these insightful remarks were coming from uh, someone who is uh, based in the, in the central New York area. Um, so I'll, I'll just give a brief introduction. Uh, Whitney Phillips uh, is the author of uh, three books. 2015, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Mapping the Relationship Between Online Trolling and Mainstream Culture. Uh, 2017, The ambivalent, ambivalent Internet, Mischief, Oddity, and Antagonism Online and coming out in, in about a month, um, what's the release date for You Are Here?
1: I think it's March 2nd, I believe.
0: Okay. So for March 2nd, uh, the book, You Are Here, a field guide for navigating polarized speech, conspiracy theories in our polluted media landscape. Um, so yeah, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for coming on. So uh, if there's anything else I missed, uh, you wanna talk about your academic career, what, what type of stuff you teach?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, thanks for having me on and for that intro. Um, I, yeah, I basically, when people ask me what I do, I I sometimes don't really know what to say. Um, it's my life and my career. And so I know it pretty intimately, but it's hard to sort of, I, I don't really, I don't really know how to describe it. And so often what I'll just respond with is I basically study everything that's terrible on the internet. And that's been true for the last 12 years. And so, You know, it's and you the way you have to do that though, you have to say that with like a smile on your face because otherwise it'll just bum people out. But that's the truth. I mean, so basically since 2008, when I started my PhD um, at the University of Oregon, you know, I I decided to write about 4chan um, and then kind of have never really deviated from this weird place um, that started out on the fringes. I mean, it was this subcultural kind of place that I began but then as the years progressed, it became more and more central to American politics, which was not where I was expecting it to end up. But there we are. So my teaching career kind of maps that as well. Um, and, you know, I start I've taught classes on internet folklore. Um, you know, I've taught classes on media literacy. I've taught classes on public debate and controversy. And basically, I teach classes that allow me to Kind of track what's happening and to have the focus of the class be stuff in the world in that moment and probably the best and most exhausting example of that was i taught um a 2020 election class last fall which i'm still tired from so right. it just in it's sort of we would have kind of structure uh structured conversation readings that i assigned at the outset of the semester kind of figuring what kinds of things would come up probably, but knowing that you know, I probably should only prep for maybe half the class each week because the rest of the class is gonna be whatever is happening in the world. And so you know, that, that really is how I approach teaching. I do as sort of a side point for fun, my, one of my favorite classes I ever get to teach, and I'm so grateful that the Communication and Rhetorical Studies department allows me to do this is I teach a cross-cultural monster narrative class which is especially juxtaposed with the 2020 election class, which was scary in its own way. The monsters class is, it's doing folklore, it's doing sort of how stories about monsters spread. And so it's the least political class that I teach and also so delightful. So I kind of do what I please, I I guess is the short answer for that.
0: Well, it's it's great. Well, first of all, you know, I was uh, I, I discovered Joseph Campbell in high school, and I was mm-hmm. a huge huge mythology person. You know, that led to reading all other types of mythology. You know, that was kind of my intro into the world, and and so I was very you know uh, fascinated and excited to hear um, that that was you, you know another field of study for you beyond studying everything that's horrible on the internet. And then <laughs> as I was reading, as I was starting. Oh, sorry.
1: Oh no. no. Where is it? Sorry, I don't even know where my phone is. Oh
0: God! You're fine. Sorry, 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 sorry. You're sorry. fine. But that's as just, you started, um, as I started reading your books and articles, I was like, God, this must be exhausting. Reading everything that's horrible on the internet, like paying attention to this, like it's, it's, it's got to be emotionally draining at times. I'd imagine.
1: Yeah, it really can be. Um you know, and especially at the outset, when it was just dark, that, that all I was looking at was the really ugly stuff. When I was working on my my book, this is why we can't have nice things. Um, you know, the focus there was people who were actively deliberately tormenting others, you know, and right. I was with a group of Facebook memorial page trolls. So people who were Going after and and taunting the friends and family and sometimes the mothers of of recently you know murdered children or people who had just died by suicide and that was um, very distressing because I also happen to be a really sensitive person um, so that was that was especially hard because that was the the phase of my research where I was staring into the abyss most directly i mean i was on 4chan every single day that's what my research was and as my as as things have sort of expanded in terms of what i'm interested in i sort of went from looking at the really ugly stuff to then thinking about okay well what are some of the ethical implications here what are some of the ways that we can you know collectively and individually make changes to how we engage online how can we try to make things a little bit better and that was the beginning we started focusing on that my co-author and i in the ambivalent internet which was we were writing that just you know just as the um white nationalist alt right was sort of on its ascendancy and the day so the, the way that book publishing works you get a bunch of opportunities to edit the book as you go but then there reaches a time where the pagination has been set you can't change it any further you're done um right. and we reach that moment and on the day after the day after the election in 2016 so we couldn't make any additional changes but we had to this is the final like copy edit and we had to plead with them can we please put in a footnote about what happened ah. um and so so that book kind of represented a shift in this focus from the explicitly dark stuff to some of the consequences that were becoming increasingly apparent of of what some of these coordinated campaigns were capable of doing. But then this most most recent book really took an even further zoomed out uh, view. What can we do to fix this? Here's the problem, here's how we got there, but what can we do? And I have found that although I still talk about what's terrible, I still have to focus a lot on how we got to this place and the disruptive, often devastating things that happen as a result. I'm really focused on, you know, uh, solutions and that policy solutions, larger solutions, but also individual solutions. And so I'm not at the end of this road. And it's been 12 years of just looking at this really upsetting stuff. I don't I, I might even be a little bit not optimistic. That's the wrong word, but I feel resolved and I feel that there are important conversations that people are willing to have now that they weren't willing to have five years ago. So I don't feel destroyed by the work if anything I feel um, kind of more focused on continuing to do it and really appreciative of all the other people who are doing similar kinds of work so it's been hard but it but it also um, I don't know I, I feel like I really have kind of found a kind of moral, um, Uh, Some moral guidance, I guess, that it's not enough to just describe what's bad. It's also important to think about how we can do better. Um, And and so that keeps it from feeling too heavy. Although, you know, there are certain moments like the, you know, during the insurrection and its aftermath where things feel scary and big because they are both scary and big. And the challenges we face are enormous, but there are, we haven't crossed the precipice. I don't think so. You know, yeah. that's something that at least allows me to wake up every day and feel like there's purpose to this because things can change if we are willing to buy in to the need that they change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to a really great, I'm a big Sam Harris fan. I don't know if you ever checked his podcast, but the last episode, his guest was talking about you know, kind of World War II and how, you know, in a similar cycle of 100 years, it felt like everything was getting out of control. And But the ability to recuperate and, you know, redirect society in such a short period of time that happened following that and, and kind of like, you know, maybe we can do that proactively this time. But, you know, I really want to tuck into, you know, as you said, some of the solutions, you know, how, how do we start unpacking this? How do we start talking? But I guess... To start out, you know, I had a, a few pre prepared questions, but, you know, my thought is I wrote a, vi- a post that went relatively viral um, about my personal experiences. I was at a community meeting and this kind of older gentleman in his probably 50s pulled me aside, middle class, you know, upper middle class in a very nice neighborhood, two kids, successful business from a family of Democrats. And I, we were there to talk about. The, the soccer field or whatever it was, you know, some small local matter. And he just kind of cornered me and got into it about JFK Jr. And that Trump was here, yeah. um, you know, to save us. And he was a predestined savior and and kind of all these QAnon talking points. So I guess I don't know if this was covered in your work, but, you know, some background about how do we get here? Um, You know, how did how do you feel that the QAnon phenomenon and all this stuff really broke out of the kind of typical 4chan circuits or whatever and kind of, you know, we have people in Congress now that prescribe to these kind of so what do you feel the progression was that, that got us here? To, that it seems so mainstream with some of these ideas that like you know democrats are drinking children's blood and there's a huge pedophile network and all these things how do you feel that you know this this kind of dynamic what what's the primary thing that got us above the fringe element into the mainstream
1: well i mean it's 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 a big question and the answer is pretty big too so i'll i'll do my best but you know the the fact of what's interesting about qAnon is that so although the furthest sort of fringe elements of QAnon are extreme, I mean, without any question, the, the blood drinking, the all of that sort of stuff. Um, so the people who really truly believe those extreme elements, you know, those are extreme beliefs and and that also is kind of a fringe phenomenon, right? Like, I mean, it, it's a more people than you would expect, but the average person probably is not thinking about the blood drinking and the, and the you know, the, right. the pedophile networks. But the underlying narrative that makes QAnon make sense is actually not at all extreme. It's actually very, very mainstream and has been prevalent within certain far right circles for decades. Um, and, you know, one of the things, one of the places that you can look for a, for a historical analog um, with QAnon is the satanic panics of the 80s and 90s. It was very similar in sort of narrative construct to Pizzagate, which preceded QAnon. Pizzagate has now gotten roped into QAnon, but it but it is unique in that Pizzagate emerged before the 2016 election. That matters because before Trump was president, there could not be a deep state. And so he had to be president first in order for Pizzagate to then get kind of retconned into the deep state narrative and then therefore and in, be included in in QAnon. But at this point Pizzagate is now a part of that idea it's the satanic pedophile networks. That, that those accusations were made in very similar ways obviously through different networks but it was the same basic argument the same basic narrative you know 30 years ago 40 years ago and in some circles even further back than that. So, so the narrative, the basic narrative of of QAnon is older, um, but it also taps into two really prevalent conspiracy theory um, templates, you could say, that are extremely prevalent within United States history and particularly within far right circles. And one of those is known as the subversion myth. So it's the evil internal enemy myth. It's this idea that some un American other. Very often, historically, the un-American other has been immigrants. It's been Jews. It's been, you know, people deemed not not one of us in scare quotes, that they're hiding in plain sight. And they are out to sort of take over the government or take over our communities, um, destroy our families, destroy our narratives, our, our, our neighborhoods. Excuse me. Um, and that and that was something that was persistent historically for, for decades, this specific them would change, but the basic narrative remained the same. Um, and also, similarly, you would have, starting in the 1960s, you, you started to see a lot of anti-government conspiracy theorizing, that the government was basically out to get you. That looked a little bit different on the left and on the right. You had an equivalent amount of conspiracy theorizing happening on the left and right, but it took a different form. So people on the left, they, they, can, they had conspiracy theories Often, you know, based on things that turned out to be true that the US government was actually doing. Um, but it was this idea that the government was out to get you, but that it was fascist in a right leaning direction. Now, on the right, there was the same belief that the government was out to get you, but that's because it was fascist, but in a left leaning direction. And so, you know, that idea, though, that the government lies, you can't trust them. And, and kind of relatedly, the news media is also sort of covering things up for the government, too, which was very prevalent before the JFK assassination. Um, there was a lot of sort of lockstep within the news media about um, things that often were proven to be false. So, you know, journalists were were complicit, either knowingly or unknowingly, in things that turned out to be real conspiracies. So there were reasons, in other words, for a lot of people to actually have suspicions about the government where you were politically was gonna determine who you thought the bad guy actually ultimately was, who was responsible for that. But those two conspiratorial energies were really prevalent and common in the US. It just so happens that the sort of heady combination of you know, subversion myths coupled with, um, anti-government conspiracy theorizing. Those things were really, really common on, on the far right within evangelical media, um, networks. And, and so those ideas for many, many people became very prominent, um, in their media experiences, especially those were the kinds of narratives about communists, about, you know, this particular kind of them coming to get you. That was, that was, really prevalent on far right um, radio networks. So heading into the Trump era, you're already talking about maybe 40 years of belief systems that have been really normalized and become very, very um, prevalent within certain segments of society. And that doesn't mean that the only people who ultimately believed in QAnon come from the far right, but you have a lot of those energies that are already on the ground Trump taps into a lot of those things. And so a lot of the things that Trump himself was saying or that became wrapped up in some of these other conspiracy theories, they mapped onto a worldview that was already there. And so people may have become more entrenched in certain ideas because Facebook's algorithms were directing them to certain content, but an algorithm cannot radicalize a person. A person has to bring data to an algorithm and then the algorithm you know, decides it knows everything about you and then feeds you more of the same of the things that you like. So the reason that we got into this mess is because so many people were already primed to believe or already did believe some version of a very sort of secularized, um, less sensationalist version of the deep state theory. This idea that especially the liberal them, the liberal establishment was out to get the, the conservative us. And so you can see how that would fit really well with with the kinds of things that Trump would then argue um, about uh, liberals, the swamp, all those kinds of things. And then it gets wrapped up in impeachment and then of course in COVID and then of course in the election. So it really has been a perfect storm, not of the Trump era, not even of the Facebook era, not even of the Fox News era, but of, you know, the entire mass media era um, in the United States. And that's why dealing with these beliefs is really hard because this is not about someone having a switch flipped off or on, you know, in in 2019. That's just not how these things work. So it runs really deep. The beliefs are often very coherent for the people who believe them. Um, You know, they're not crazy. They're not stupid. Um, the, the, you know, assert, uh, many of the beliefs are not empirically grounded, but that doesn't mean that there's some fundamental break in their rational capabilities. It's just that what they're seeing looks like confirmation from every side. It's just that that the information they're seeing happens not to be true. Oh, oh, uh, you might have frozen because I can't. Oh no! Uh oh. Well, uh, well, folks. uh, We—I don't know where Joe went. So, um, I guess I could ask. Let's see. I'll ask a question of myself. Okay, here's a question: How do you account then for the fact that there are a lot of people on the left, or people who aren't sort of Trump supporters, who? support QAnon or believe in QAnon. That's a good question, Whitney, yeah, I'll tell you. So it 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 is the case that within certain communities these beliefs are more sort of normalized or more sort of prevalent um in the air people are breathing. But it's not just being a Trump supporter, not just being someone on the on the right that it, it determines whether or not you would would accept these theories. It has to do with th- trust and mistrust and who you're inclined to trust and mistrust. So for many folks, um, you know, they're because of their life experiences. Maybe they have good reasons for this, you know, but for for whatever the whatever the reason they mistrust the medical establishment or they mistrust scientists or they or they don't they don't place their faith in the official account, which is a lot of people, not just people on the right. So that helps explain why. know, within the QAnon ranks, you also see folks in the wellness community, in yoga studios, you know, who otherwise would not be regarded necessarily as being sort of Trumpy in inclination, ultimately engaging with the kinds of materials, the kinds of information, the kinds of beliefs that then bring them um, to QAnon um, through often algorithmic recommendations. I don't know what other kinds of questions I can ask myself about this because we still don't, I still don't know what happened to Joe. So um, I am going to email him right now. I don't know why I'm narrating this, but I feel like I should somehow. Um, I am still on the show. Where are you? You lose. It's no? pretty obvious question to ask. Well, let's see. Um, what other kinds of questions? Okay. Well, so the another question that I get really frequently is the question: you know, what do you do when you are in when you encounter someone in your life who believes some version of the QAnon megaplex? So you know it it's really important first of all that not everybody believes in the blood drinking stuff i mean that there are some folks who do but but others um that that's a bridge too far right but they may believe in the deep state whether or not they say the word deep state the phrase the phrase deep state specifically um you know that they were convinced and remain convinced that there is a cabal of democrats who are actively trying to undermine trump that's a more is secularized version of the pretty evangelically focused, um, elements of QAnon that get the most play. So if you encounter someone in your life who believes some version of that, you know, the, the number one thing, the most important thing is don't yell at them, don't make fun of them and don't accuse them of being either, um, crazy or stupid. Um, oh, oh okay so i'm responding i'm responding to, to joe hold on we're gonna we're gonna get through this everybody well i'm just interviewing myself now is that is that all right um i can answer E main questions I get from people. And then maybe some of it will be usable. Hold on, everybody. Okay, we're just coordinating. See, see how it works? Um, you know, so so just coming at somebody and, and being super accusatory, it's not, um, it, 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 for one thing, it's just not going to be that's it, just not going to be rhetorically effective, um, especially if you come at someone and sort of are throwing fact checks at them. Those of you um, in the audience who maybe have tried this before will probably already know from experience that that tends not to work. That if you are talking to your uncle about QAnon and your uncle is saying the things that they believe to be true about QAnon, just saying, no, you're wrong, is not going to be the thing that convinces your uncle. That's just not that's just not how it works. And it may even make your uncle or whomever or your younger brother or anybody, your neighbor, it doesn't matter. that may even make them more stubborn, more resistant, because, you know, within the conspiratorial landscape, the kind of person who would deny the deep state is exactly the kind of person who would be part of the deep state. So, you know, just by pushing back against it, you can actually reinforce the, the conspiratorial frame. Um, oh, that, oh, okay, we're talking to... Uh, well, I can I can stop I can stop talking I can stop talking if you want me to to myself if you like but I just tried to not panic we're just figuring this out but when you think about okay well what could we do what could you do so if you're if fact checking is not going to be helpful to your uncle or to your younger brother or whomever um you know one of the things that's really important to remember is to 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 think about how old some of these beliefs might be or how um kind of entrenched in somebody's identity because that's the tricky thing right that people aren't making arguments, logical arguments, um, when they are professing belief in a particular thing. That's a reflection of identity. Oh, hey, he's back. Wait, no, he's not. Okay, he popped back up for a second. And now he's here, he's perfect.
0: Well, and now you
1: can just hear me continue to answer the rest of this question. I just rolled with it.
0: Please do, thank you for keeping it going. My internet went out in my house, I don't know why, but I got my cell phone uh, spot, but please go ahead.
1: Hey, that's awesome. Well, I was just I was just talking to the good people about if your uncle or younger brother believes in QAnon, how should you not respond and how might you respond that could be effective? Right. This is the number one question I get. So I just to, to quickly bring the host up to speed, don't yell fact checks at them and don't call them crazy and don't make fun of them at a family dinner. Um, hopefully socially distanced and with masks, masks and outside or better just like wait till we're all vaccinated. But that's a separate conversation. Um, But so, you know, you really have to think about how it is that people arrive at these beliefs and recognize um, the fact that they they get there. Because they feel coherent, They, they help cohere a person's worldview, a sense of identity. And you can't argue someone out of their identity that's just not that's just not what that work how that works the one thing though that can be helpful um is to instead of immediately sort of descending upon the fact value of a particular element of the conspiracy theory you know try to have more of a meta reflective conversation that allows you to maybe talk about how the person gets their information or how what they understand about algorithmic recommendations get them talking about networks get them talking about the process of information gathering rather than just starting with no you're wrong about this particular claim and that those kinds of conversations are not guaranteed to dislodge the belief the belief may not be dislodgeable but if you're starting with a sort of network focused network focused approach you can maybe get them thinking about why they're seeing certain information rather than the fact that they're seeing it because The way that, you know, networks and recommendations work online is when you feed the algorithm, you tell the algorithm who you are um, or the algorithm thinks they know who you are, then they tee up content for you to then continually engage with. And the more that you engage with, the more of it you're served. And what that does, not just on a particular website, but on multiple websites, multiple social sites, is that people end up seeing lots of apparently confirming information and a rational person when confronted with information that all looks to confirm a particular idea, um, it's not unreasonable to, for them to think, oh, well, this must be because it's actually happening. It must be real. But that's not true. That just means the algorithms on these different platforms are serving you this this content. So having that sort of, st- having that opportunity to step back um, and and talk to the person in your life about, why they're seeing what they're seeing is a good first step. It is at the very least not likely to get them to immediately yell at you or get mad at you or disengage from you right out of the gate. And that's one of the things that we really want to avoid in these kinds of conversations.
0: Absolutely. I I appreciate that. I I don't know if you touched on this because I lost signal there for a little bit, but you know, in your article, you talk about deep mimetic frames of, of, of QAnon people. Do you want to explain that? I mean, did you already touch on that? Or do you want to? I did
1: not, no, no. I was sort of gesturing to the idea that, you know, these ideas are, are deeply held uh, beliefs and fundamentals to someone's identity. But in some of the work that I've done, you know, one of the ways that we have um sort of operationalized that idea, we use the the concept my co-author Brian Milner and I um, deep mimetic frames. And that concept is pulling from a number of different studies and, and ideas within um, communication theory and, and media studies as well. And so the deep part of deep memetic frames speaks to the fact that people have stories. They tell themselves stories about the world, their world, their, their lives are structured with these stories. And many of the stories we tell, especially the ones about who we think are good and who we think are bad and why... Um, we we carry them deep in our bodies. We feel our stories. They're not. This is not rational. This is not logic. This is this is experiential affect. So that's the deep and deep mimetic frame. Um, the frame part is just a you know a, a, the mechanism through which we see the world and how our vision is framed will sort of dictate uh, or at least certainly strongly influence what we see. So if you think about, I'm looking out of a window in my house right now. The window is cut such that I can only see certain elements of the house behind us. If the window were larger, if it were more rectangular, if it were whatever, I would see more. But because this is how my room is framed, that's what I see. Um, So you have the deep, you have the frames and memetic. So that's derived from the idea of a meme. And what characterizes a meme is that it, it changes over time it's altered by multiple people over a period of time. And so it evolves as it travels. And our deep memetic frames are the same way that we're not just born with a set of deep memetic frames that never change. I mean, many of us can speak to, you know, the things we believe politically when we were younger are not what we believe anymore. You know, many people go from not being religious to being very religious or from being very religious to not being religious at all. So it's possible for the ways that we, engage with the world to shift um you know and the process of both kind of consenting to our frames but also being handed them and sort of accepting them as they are but tinkering with them a little bit or you know accepting the tinkerings of other people that's what makes them mimetic, that they evolve over time with us and at a certain level where we inherit our frames but on another level we're choosing our frames we're choosing how we relate to our frames so those three things put together, deep mimetic frames, it speaks to what structures our understanding of the world and how we fit in it and where the threats are and who the friends are and who the foes are and most importantly, arguably, what we should do in response. And so a a conspiratorial um, deep memetic frame that really is setting a person up to interpreting certain data in a particular way um, that someone else might not. I mean, someone else might see the same event um, and, and not think of it as being threatening at all. You know, it's the classic example is the emails from, you know, John Podesta's um, email account that to people who were sort of seeing the emails through this deep memetic frame of conspiratorial um, paranoia, They were picking and choosing things that looked like evidence of something really nefarious, but a different person not standing behind those frames. They wouldn't have thought about it at all. And that's what happens when you're when you're dealing with conspiratorial worldview. It's not just a a narrative. It's a way of being in the world and a way of seeing and interpreting information. So When you try to throw a fact check at somebody's deep memetic frame, it is going to bounce off of you and probably hit you in the nose like that. It's just it's not permeable to your fact checks because it's not about facts. It's about experience. It's about embodied um, sort of ways of being and seeing and thinking um, and interpreting. So that's what makes attempting to debunk conspiracy theories so incredibly difficult.
0: Right. So so if I understand you correctly, you've kind of said, you know, one, don't don't mock, you know, don't don't try to mock people. Don't try to outfact them with with a New York Times article about uh, about a breakdown because that's that's not going to do it. So if I understand it correctly is, you know, my wife had had a line that that always resonates with me because, you know, I, I use social media a ton. I'm totally an addict. I have no, you know, delusions about, you know, what my own habits are um, and, and I use it, you know, politically all the time. And, um, you know, I, I do my best to only share information that I've got from two or three different sources that I've really, that I've really sussed out. And her, her line to me is always treat every day like it's April fools, like every meme you see, like research it as if go from the basis that this is fictional and, you know, even if it seems like, you know, one meme that I shared the, a, a couple of weeks ago was about Biden's inauguration. The day before inauguration, I saw someone who I trusted who is politically savvy that was, you know, in the same field as me share a meme that said, you know, at 1130 is the inauguration swearing in. About, and it was all wrong information, you know, and mm-hmm. I shared it and I was like, oh, my God, this is like the first meme that I haven't gone and fact check and it was about the most mundane things, but it was completely wrong information. So I guess is the advice kind of to get Q type people to question, you know, kind of engage them in that conversation about where are you getting your information from? You know, are you, are you kicking the tires on all this? Is that kind of where we want to guide the conversation to make it productive in your thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, part of the danger potentially there, it sort of depends on the relationship you have with that person, Um, because they might if you're if you're nudging them too hard or if you're saying, did you fact check that 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 might automatically put you in the category of like deep state agitator, Um, you know, and so it's directing people to facts is um, can be fraught. But having a broader conversation about information networks, how how algorithms work, again, it's not about sort of engaging on the substance of the belief. It's more helping someone situate themselves in a broader network environment, Um, because we all fit within a broader network environment, regardless of what we believe. Everybody is subject to recommendation algorithms. Everybody is subject to these different sort of processes online And most people don't think very much about those things, not because they're not smart, but because they just are not really asked to. And frankly, you know, social platforms, it's in their best interest for people to not really reflect on how the machine works, because if more people knew, they probably wouldn't like it so much. Um, And so just having those kinds of conversations. The other thing that I would recommend, and not everybody is in the right Headspace, especially now. I mean, we're all tired and we're all stressed out, and having difficult conversations with, you know, for instance, our racist uncles might be a, a tall order. Or, you know, depending on what your life circumstances are, you know, if you're a person who is um, potentially at risk from some of these conspiracy theories, because many of them are are white nationalist or white supremacist and violent, and it's not maybe fair to place the burden of having these conversations on people who are in danger from white nationalism and supremacy. So, not everybody can do this in the same way, but when it's possible, sometimes just getting a feel for somebody's deep memetic frames. Deep memetic frames, it's interesting because algorithms are essentially deep memetic frame detectors that they're designed to kind of figure out like what who our good guys are and who our bad guys are and many of us just, again, not because we're not smart, but maybe we're not, we don't have the time or the bandwidth or whatever to really think about that. Um, We don't really think about what our frames are or what they look like and, and getting someone to reflect on, you know, what is your worldview like that, that opening up that kind of conversation, asking people about what kind of media have you engaged with and what has that what has that how has that made you feel about liberals who do you trust and who don't you trust and why and what kinds of experiences align with that and how do you contend with the fact that my experiences are different you know I've gone online too and I've searched for this stuff too but I've not found the same things as you and why you know that, that that is a conversation that's not going to immediately boil over and both parties can learn something. Not, I mean, so from the perspective of a person who is not a QAnon believer, um, you know, you can't actually respond meaningfully and thoughtfully to someone's deep mimetic frame until you know what it is. That until then, you might make assumptions about what they believe and think that certain things are going to convince them. But for example, you know, your point a minute ago about don't share a New York Times article. You know, part of the problem with sharing a New York Times article is that believers in the QAnon megaplex of theories are also the people who are going to think that the New York Times journalists are liars. Right. So right. Their, their worldview is that that evidence, what might look like evidence to you, is not going to look like evidence to them. And that's something you can't even really be sensitive to until you understand where they're coming from. And so that's not just a kumbaya call. I mean, I think that having respectful conversations is important. Um, We need to be able to communicate with each other. That's like pretty fundamental to democracy, but it also is just simply not effective rhetorically to jump to conclusions and get super mad and start making fun of someone. That's just not gonna get you to a place where there's a possibility for understanding.
0: Yeah. you know, I've definitely spent, um, you know, not in this framework, but I've definitely spent a lot of time, you know, bantering online with folks like this and and, and definitely taking, you know, some of the path you're talking about. I think, you know, mockery and and, and jumping to those conclusions is, you know, counterproductive and it's, it's not an issue of of. of you know, do you have the right to do that or whatever mm-hmm. It's that that's not the that's not the conversation. It's like, what's going to get us the results? And if that's the if that's the conversation, then we have to look at it. So I, I want to you know, I'm so upset that my Internet, uh, you know, this is the second <laughs> time in two days my Internet has gone down for multiple hours. But I want to make sure we hit some of the bigger points because, you know, you said something that really, uh, you know, brightened me because as, as again, reading your first book, I was like, oh, man, this this Poor, in, this poor soul has looked at so much horrible stuff. On the internet. But you, you said kind of, you feel that there's like okay, there are some things um, that we can talk about. There are some, there is some direction uh, we can go. So that's kind of on an, you know, we were just discussing on an individual level what mm-hmm. you, as the individual, can do. But you know, as you talk about the bigger picture, you know, this is something that I've, you know, been massively focused on for the last few years. Just you know, not. For any academic purpose but just through the podcasts i listen to in the media i ingest mm-hmm. talking about what are these algorithms you know i don't know if you did the um there was the i think it was the new york times had the rabbit hole podcast that really got into oh, the week mm-hmm. about about what these algorithms are and where they're directing you and what role that you know what responsibility do social media companies have in you know there was this, someone who was talking yesterday about you know social media algorithms directed everybody to Alex Jones and it was like, you know, this is great. This is this is candy. This will keep them online for another four hours. And then all of a sudden it was like, all right, he's banned. Like he can't, mm-hmm. you know, and it just shows the unhealthiness of the, you know, of the dynamic. So I guess, you know, just just to spark on that topic, I guess I would assume that some of those algorithm conversations and transparency are part of, you know, what what thoughts are beyond the individual, but what are your thoughts beyond the individual? How I as Joe deal with QAnon, how does we as a society, what are some of the steps we can take to move outwards?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's really important to deal with the platforms. The platforms have, should have responsibility for for what it is they allow to be posted to their sites. Um, You know, the COVID crisis and all of the misinformation that flourished around Anti-masking stuff and other just falsehoods about about the virus, um, really drove home that you know speech on social platforms it's not just speech it's also very often an issue of public health you know and COVID is the most obvious example of that but the kinds of beliefs that people can hold of course there's free speech you know freedom of expression issues to contend with but what do you do when a space is so unhealthy that the functioning democratic process is simply not possible. And that's kind of where we are here, that the platforms have allowed things to get so bad for so long that they really needed to take some extreme steps in banning Trump. And ultimately, you know, given what happened after the insurrection, I, I understand that decision. But I took no joy in the decision because they should have been dealing with it from the very beginning. beginning. The fact yep. that it got this far and it got this bad, they, their hands were forced in a lot of ways, even just from a public relations perspective. I mean, the people were, this is what the majority of the people wanted them to do. And they have based a lot of their moderation decisions off of um, the the sort of spirit of the marketplace, which sometimes that means their decisions are good ones, but I don't want the spirit of the marketplace to dictate these, these moderation decisions that impact the functionality of our democracy. That's not good enough. So the platforms need to alter how they look at moderate. I mean, moderation is very hard. Let me be really clear. But thinking about what kinds of content moderation policies there could be or how they could be more consistently and transparently enforced, because um, part of the problem is that they have nice sounding content moderation policies, but they're not uniformly enforced in that way. Some people get away with stuff, other people don't. So there needs to be consistency and transparency there. And we need to figure out, there needs to be transparency around algorithms so that we know what they're doing and why they're directing people to certain places. Um, But I think that we are only dealing still with the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, if we are focusing the solutions on the platforms. That what happens on the platforms is, it's a structural problem, but it's also a symptomatic problem um, of much deeper cultural divisions and um, issues within our culture, totally offline, that need to be dealt with. So yes, I mean, deplatforming, demonetization, content moderation—all things that are specific to platforms. Those we need to do. We need to do those things. Like those things are are sometimes appropriate. Um, I mean, moderation is is definitely appropriate. Um, but, you know, demonetization, deplatforming, those are tools in a, in a toolbox for dealing with the worst offenders. And, you know, it's a question of how do we use it more effectively? Um, but if we just do those things, if we just focus on the platforms themselves, that's not where all of the problems come from. Platforms exacerbate existing social problems, um, inequity sort of. Um, it, inequalities, structural inequalities, but those things precede the internet and and people bring their biases, their vitriol, their vengeance from offline spaces to online spaces. And so for me, when I think about where do we go, where do I wanna put my resources as, as an academic and researcher, You know, I'm not thinking about the platforms I mean, other people are. And I'm very glad and they're very smart and they're going to do a good job sort of thinking through the the deep complexities here. But for me, I care about K through 12. That thinking about how we teach not just media literacy education in a sort of narrow sense, but also how do we teach media history? How do we how do we situate people within the last 60 or 70 years of mass media? That is something that we we need to do because a lot of these QAnon beliefs they percolate up from pretty far right um, networks and have been allowed to become very normalized and that process the network structures the economic incentives that have allowed that to happen need to be interrogated as part of a civics understanding of the United States and so. You know, we need to do a better job teaching these things to young people. I don't know, you know, what interventions are possible when you're talking about, you know, the the man in his fifties you were referencing earlier who cornered you at the meeting. Um, you know, someone who's really set in their ways. There are intervention strategies. There certainly are ways to not make fights worse. There are better ways to have conversations that aren't immediately going to backfire. But. We really need to be putting our resources on the people who have not been, I don't wanna, I don't, I never wanna refer to anyone regardless of their political sort of identity as being tainted, but but our information landscape has been polluted consistently over decades. And so we need to start with, with young people who have not been raised in that kind of environment to model what healthy democratic participation looks like and what, healthy, responsible, ethical, inclusive, thoughtful um, media engagement practices look like. So those are the kinds of things, though. Unfortunately, there's no you can't just hit a button and then suddenly you accomplish that. That's long work. It's slow work. It's figuring out what teachers need in terms of their own resources. It's everyone being willing or a significant percentage of the population being willing to interrogate their own deep memetic frames and thinking about why they believe and feel the way that they do, and and what kinds of problems might that be causing inadvertently? Because again, our algorithms know what our deep romantic frames are, but we often don't. Right. So it's going to take a lot individually and, and culturally. And the question is whether or not people are going to be willing to put that work in.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to hear you say that because that was something that I, I just kept posting. And one of the first comments we had on, on the podcast was my friend Chris saying, talk about the impacts of, of low literal, literacy and critical thinking education. Because I feel like, you know, that was where my head went um, so many times throughout this thing. It was like, man, we really haven't focused on critical thinking and kind of, you know, pulling outside and and being self-reflective. And, you know, and that's not just to say cute on people, like you're saying, getting everybody in America to question their own, you know, deep memetic frames. And and they're kind of, you know, looking back at it, I think in that lies, you know, a lot of our solution. Um, I know we wanted to keep it to um, about an hour, um, so I'll, maybe I'll just ask one or two more questions. I had a lot more to get to, but we had the internet crash.
1: Oh, I tried. I I, hopefully, maybe I got to something that you were going to ask. I did my best. I, I did.
0: That was that was that was actually my next question. Was a quote uh, from one of your pieces about you know how do we engage with individuals from QAnon online and how do you know mm-hmm. how do we, so that was actually my next question. So Perfect. I'm sure. We didn't miss that much, but I hope you will come back when the book comes out. Oh yeah, can, absolutely. And we'll we'll speak specifically about that. But one of the one of the um, you know one of the uh, quotes that kind of caught me in the first few chapters of this is why we can't have nice things was um, something you said. Trolling embodies precisely the values that are said to make America the greatest and the most powerful nation, uh, with it with you know a heavy emphasis on the pursuit of life, liberty, and the freedom of expression. And, mm-hmm. and what that kind of triggered in me was, was the Spider-Man quote of, you know, um, with with great power comes, comes great responsibility. And kind of, I, I wonder, you know, so I wanted you to kind of expand on that. What is it that's so deeply American about you know, the trolling culture. And, and by that, I think by extension, some of the online irresponsibility that's come up, I, I think probably that's what you were pointing at, but I don't know specifically, but you know, in my mind, it's kind of like, oh yeah, we want freedom, freedom, freedom. And it's like, what about responsibility or mm-hmm. accountability with freedom? It's like, no, that's not part of the American experience. Like we're about the freedom and not necessarily any of the aspects that go with it. But if you can expand on that concept, what did you mean when you wrote that?
1: sure i mean well in that particular so in that book i was referring to subcultural trolls on and around 4chan's b-board that was a different culture than maybe when people hear the term 4chan now it's become pretty synonymous with white nationalists and supremacists and when i was writing that it was still problematic in all kinds of ways but there wasn't such a clear ideology and it wasn't so explicitly right-leaning um that happened after the fact it's a long it's a long story that could be its own podcast but so what I was referring to there is that, you know, the trolls that were that I was studying, who I was studying, they really embodied this idea that if they could do something, they had it was their right to. It didn't matter what the consequences were for other people. If it was there, they could take it. And not only could they, they should, because it was available for them to do so. And so they kind of embodied this sort of weird manifest destiny in some ways that they were never asked um, by themselves or by anyone else to think about the consequences of their behaviors. Everything just got to be, you know, um, for their own benefit and their own benefit was lulls. It was the amassing of a particular kind of laughter that indicated the emotional distress of the victim um, that as long as they were getting what they wanted, that, that they were experiencing freedom for themselves, That was all that mattered. And and that was their only ethical obligation was to their own self-interest. And that has some parallels to, to the moment that we're in now. But if I were to kind of situate that quote in our current moment, I would really and to speak to your question specifically, you know, in the United States, we it's not just that we value or are sort of trained culturally to value freedom. It's that we are culturally trained to value a particular kind of freedom, and that kind of freedom—it's—it's it's known as negative freedoms. It's freedom from, freedom from interference, freedom from censorship, freedom from anyone telling us what we can do. That we should be able to do what we want at any time, just like the trolls were doing. They wanted to extract laws from, you know, the mothers of a, a, a child who just died. Then that was their right to do so. Um, the problem with freedoms from is that they are entirely focused on the individual. And, And what that does then is it creates kind of a myopic worldview in which you don't have to think about consequences. You don't have to think about the people you share your space with that as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. And so negative freedoms are contrasted with what are known as positive freedoms. That's freedom for the collective. So It is the freedom for everyone to enjoy the same freedoms equally. And although um, people often look at censorship as it's this bad thing, right? Anytime you're restricting someone's speech, that's an infringement on their freedoms. You know, in, in terms of negative freedoms, yes. But what moderating or dealing with really problematic, really hateful, vicious, dehumanizing speech does, it actually creates more freedom for more people by giving more people the opportunity to speak and participate in a democracy. Right. And so, to, to allow for more people to enjoy more freedoms, there has to be a line that, that we need to sort of respect. And, and so, you know, social platforms. Have always valued freedoms from both because that's the cultural ethic of, you know, this sort of we want to do what we want, information wants to be free, but you also can't monetize um, data that hasn't been um, <laughs> placed on a website. So there's just this dual tension, this dual pressure to allow as much to spread as fast as possible because that's good for freedom, right? But the the downside, the problem is that that actually interferes with so many people's freedoms who are now not able to speak. They're afraid to speak. Um, Other people's speech harms them and means that they can't participate meaningfully in democracy. So part of what needs to happen in all of this is that we need to shift our focus from negative freedoms to positive freedoms. It's the same thing in the mask debate, right? People who get mad that they're being required to wear a mask because that interferes with their freedoms well, but by you wearing a mask that ensures the freedoms and health of others. And so there needs to be sort of a shifting in our sense of responsibility and obligation to each other. Um, And so, you know, hopefully through, I mean, it will take a lot of interventions again, you know, at the educational level is where a lot of this work has to happen but we have to move from negative to positive. And, and once we do, we'll be able to better build networks that can actually allow for the maximum amount of participation and engagement and diversity and expression.
0: I love it. You know, the one thing I always, uh, the, the quick line I always love was, you, you know, your right to throw a punch uh, stops it at the bridge of my nose you know like uh, you know it's kind of this thing like i have the right to do it well yeah like you were saying about masks you know it it really is um you know it, we have to have a more nuanced and complex view of everything if we're going to move forward so with that i know you have another appointment i appreciate you taking this hour out of your time thank you so much and really i would do this like you know once a month however often you want to come back Maybe, uh, that's amazing just shoot well, me a lot, I'd love to, we'd love to have you and your partner back for uh, March 2nd when your book comes out. Woo, for really? who's watching this online, I put a link to the book uh, where you can order online. Um, uh, Wait, can-
1: online can- as in they can see me? What's that? They can see me? Yeah. Oh no, oh everybody look, I'm cold. I Okay, I didn't realize that was part of the bargain. That's really upsetting. Okay, I thought that this was just going to be audio. I thought that I was just looking at your face. All right, well, enjoy my hat. Enjoy my twelve sweatshirts. Enjoy my blanket. Um, this is what it looks like in my very cold house. So,
0: apologies
1: for my situation.
0: The pri- the primary thing is the audio. You know, you know. But <laughs>
1: still, oh god, I didn't. I'm now. I'm very embarrassed. All right, well, uh, being real
0: here. I, I thought that was understood. My bad. Oh
1: no nope all right well thank you thank you very much um
0: thank you you, witty i really appreciate it everybody please i I just purchased the the um the 2015 book uh this is why we can't have nice things and check our articles on the guardian and wired and and get the new book when it comes out i i really think this is uh some of the really these are the issues that keep me up at night and uh -hmm. you know some of your writing is some of the the best that i've read on the subject and so i really appreciate it it's really great stuff Thank
1: you. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for coming on.